Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Breaking Down Mental Health, with myself, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Heidi Burns, social worker, Saima Khan, and nurse practitioner, Dr. Christina Swiner. We're joined today by Dr. Victor Hong, who had previously joined us in episode one and has returned for a discussion on the legal aspects of mental health care. Thank you for joining us again, Dr. Hong. Thank you for having me back. So for those of you that might have missed the introduction for Dr. Hong in episode one, let me introduce him again. Dr. Hong received his bachelor's degree in English literature from the University of California, Berkeley, before attending medical school at Loma Linda University. He completed a psychiatry residency at the University of Michigan, and he is currently the medical director for psychiatric emergency services at Michigan Medicine. His clinical and research interests include college mental health, emergency psychiatry, personality disorders, sports psychiatry, and suicidology. He is a recipient of various grants and has been active teaching internationally, nationally, regionally, and within the institution on a variety of topics, including personality disorders, suicide. None of the speakers here today have any financial disclosures. So let's jump right into this talk with a big question. What does it mean to be psychiatrically hospitalized as a child versus as an adult? This is a really important question and a question that comes up a lot. Children and adults are treated quite differently in this state when they're receiving mental health treatment. And there are different laws governing what can be done with whose consent and where they can be treated. First of all, the definition of a child from a mental health perspective is someone 17 years of age and under, and adults are considered 18 and over. Uh, Depending on how old they are, if they need an inpatient level of care, they need to be admitted to a child-only or an adult-only unit. And, you know, this is intended to help create a safe environment for the patients, but it sometimes creates barriers in terms of getting people the care they need. Uh, For example, some individuals who are technically adults but who have the cognitive ability of a child still need to be admitted to an adult inpatient unit. Conversely, uh, a high schooler who has already turned 18 can only be admitted to an adult unit as well, and so on and so forth. Um, There have been individuals who have turned 18 while on an inpatient unit and have had to be transferred from a child to an adult unit. So there are a variety of factors that are involved here. Thank you, Dr. Hong. I think that is a huge question we get, especially from our medical colleagues who are like, wait, this child, this adolescent is admitted to the children's hospital and they're 18, but why can't they be on our child um, psychiatry unit? So thank you for speaking to that. Can you walk us through what it means to be petitioned, certified, and the differences between voluntary and involuntary? Uh, Another really good question and another complicated process. So we'll try to break it down. This is a process that is specifically for adult patients, again, those 18 and over. An individual who's 18 and over can voluntarily sign themselves into a psychiatric hospital if they meet criteria for that hospitalization. However, if there's a disagreement between the patient and the clinical team, and the clinical team feels that the patient needs to be uh, admitted to the hospital, there is an involuntary admission process. Uh, The first step in that process is what's called a petition. A petition is a legal document that anyone can fill out and sign, whether it is a doctor, whether it's somebody's neighbor, sibling, a law enforcement officer often fill fill out petitions, anyone really. And, And that petitioner is stating that 
they're concerned about an individual's mental health and they feel that they need emergency mental health evaluation. Uh, one thing to point out is that while the petition is important in the entire process of involuntary hospitalization, it actually doesn't accomplish anything in the initial phase of the process. Um, it does not go anywhere. It does not accomplish anything. It doesn't go to a court to be filed. Um, it kind of just sits with the clinical team. <clears throat> and the reason to point this out is that um, there's a misperception that a petition needs to be filled out and is required to hold anyone against their will in, let's say, an emergency department or an inpatient unit. And that is really not true. We can hold people against their will even if a petition has not yet been uh, filled out if we believe that there is imminent safety risk. So after a petition is filled out, the next step is what is called a certificate. And a certificate is a form that is filled out by a psychologist or a doctor who has evaluated the patient and who has essentially agreed with the petition and feels that as a result of a mental illness, the patient is a danger to themselves or others cannot care for themselves or has limited insight in their condition such that if they're not treated, they will then become a danger to themselves or others or cannot care for themselves. When the certificate is filled out along with the petition, this completes the steps necessary for the person to be involuntarily hospitalized. But the process does not stop there. Um, there are two more steps. Within 24 hours of the patient entering the inpatient psychiatric unit, a psychiatrist must evaluate the patient and fill out a second certificate if they agree with the petitioner and the person who filled out the first certificate. Now we have three individuals who have all agreed that involuntary hospitalization is necessary and the hospitalization can continue. The final step is if the individual still does not agree to the admission, uh, they have the right to argue their case in front of a judge and the judge then will make the final decision. Um, so again, it's a bit complicated and there are many steps, but the reason there are so many steps in place is to preserve the rights of the individual and to reduce the chance that there are unnecessary hospitalizations. Thank you so much for that reflection, Dr. Hong. I think it ties into our last episode where we talked about the mental health code and, again, that there's so many safeguards in place to protect psychiatric patients when they're receiving care and ensuring that they receive care with dignity, they receive the right level of care, and that they have access to the appropriate supports and resources in those settings. Can you share a little bit about some of the criteria for someone being psychiatrically admitted? Sure. The answer is a little bit murky, but to try to make it pretty basic, one of the major criteria and really the bread and butter of what we do in psychiatry is suicide risk. The vast majority of individuals, child or adult, that are admitted to a psychiatric unit are there because the clinical team deems that they are at risk for suicide imminently, not at some point in the distant future. The second criteria is that the clinical team deems that the individual is a risk or a danger to other people, that they may imminently, in the near future, harm an individual, uh, kill an individual, uh, or harm or kill uh, a group of individuals as a result of their mental illness. The third criteria really speaks to the patient's ability to care for themselves, and that is basically to provide food or shelter living environment for themselves. If the patient is not able to reasonably do that, that would be another criteria for mental health admission. 
And I would give the example of somebody who has acute psychosis and may not be threatening themselves, may not be threatening other people, but are in such a disorganized mental state that they're walking out in the cold without clothes, for example, and cannot protect themselves. The fourth criteria, and this is a little bit more relevant for adults, is that if the adult does not believe that they have a mental illness, this often leads to non-adherence with treatment recommendations such as medications. Those often lead to a relapse of symptoms to the point that the patient then would become a danger to themselves or others or could not take care of themselves. As psychiatrists, we hold a lot of responsibility um, when we evaluate patients, particularly like Dr. Hong and I do in the emergency setting where on a daily basis we're we're trying to determine um, this imminent risk with patients and and whether it's a situation where we may have to take away a person's rights. And it's never done lightly and I think is actually a lot more rare than people might think. You know, it's it's a considerable uh, endeavor and in most psychiatrists, you know, really look into that idea of if, is this person imminently at risk of harming themselves or others and, you know, can they take care of themselves? And to reiterate, this is this applies to adults and, and we're talking a lot about sort of the pediatric situation, but, you know, the, the petition, the certification are really, um, you know, on adults who have that independence and ability and autonomy to, to make their own decisions. And in a, in a child case, we're really sort of working with parents to look at the, the risk factors and um, the criteria for them coming into the hospital. I really appreciate you bringing that up, Dr. Burns, because when we're evaluating somebody for risk to themselves or others, it can be a quite a lengthy process. Uh, we sometimes have to interview family members. It's a little bit like being a detective and putting all the pieces together to come up with the final decision. Um, it's not a situation in which you can order a lab test to determine whether somebody needs to be hospitalized. So it just takes quite a bit of time to arrange all of this and organize the evaluation. And another thing to point out is that oftentimes the reports from the patient and their loved ones are contradictory. So we really have to spend quite a bit of time understanding you know, who may be the best historian or the most accurate historian. So the bottom line is sometimes these cases uh, can take a quite a bit of time. I think we have spoken a lot about the legality around admitting an adult patient to a psychiatric admission, but can you speak a little bit to what it's like on the pediatric side of things? So this is the other very important difference in the psychiatric management of pediatric versus adult populations. Uh, there is no petition and certificate process with pediatric patients. If a pediatric patient needs an inpatient psychiatric admission, uh, the parent or legal guardian is the ultimate decision maker and can sign their child into the unit whether the ch uh, child wants to be admitted or not. So there really is no such thing as a voluntary or involuntary patient in the pediatric mental health world. Uh, minors do not have much say in the matter legally. One other thing to point out is that in rare cases, the parent or guardian may not want to sign their child into the hospital, but the clinician may feel the safety risk is so high that they actually can legally bar the patient from leaving the hospital. These cases are rare. 
uh, very complicated. And of course, we do everything to avoid them, but they do happen. And uh, of course, the child protection team is involved in those cases. So let's say we have a child or an adult who's come in through the emergency department. Um, They've been evaluated by a psychiatric team and found to be appropriate for a psychiatric admission. What does the process look like at that point? Saima, as our resident social worker, you are intimately involved in that process and often take the reins at that point to help people get from the emergency department to the inpatient psychiatric admission. Can you explain what the steps are? Thanks so much, Dr. Burns. Definitely social work is essential in this role and oftentimes a key part of any hospital system when we're thinking about coordinating psychiatric admission for adults and pediatric patients. So sometimes they're involved in helping complete the legal paperwork that Dr. Hong mentioned. So oftentimes a petitioner may be a social worker in our hospital setting that's completed an assessment and determined that um, a patient needs a psychiatric admission. Once we know that someone needs to be admitted and we have the correct legal paperwork, you know, one important step is just sometimes getting lab work done in an emergency room. And so kind of ensuring that there's no medical cause for this patient's symptoms. And in particular, you know, oftentimes we see older adults in the emergency room who come in with altered mental status. They may be hallucinating and they've actually maybe have a UTI. And so that's kind of where, you know, um, it's really important to practice good medicine and be thoughtful about, you know, why is someone experiencing the mental health symptoms that they are. And so kind of once we we've determined someone is medically stable and appropriate to go to a psychiatric unit, the next step is looking at insurance. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about the barriers within our state related to insurance and how insurance dictates care more than it should in our state. And so kind of once we've looked at insurance, then we look at the available psychiatric beds. And so, you know, many of hospitals will canvas the entire state. And it's not uncommon, you know, when I'm working in our emergency room or in our children's emergency room that I'm getting calls from, you know, hospitals in Traverse City and the UP that are trying to place adolescents in their own emergency room. So it can be a challenging process, but the teams are there 24-7 oftentimes in the emergency room helping coordinate admission and trying to get people to that next level of care so they can start on their journey of getting better and hopefully being safe to come home. One thing I will add to that is this may seem somewhat archaic, but with our current mental health system regarding insurance authorization, uh, there are a variety of barriers to getting that. So there are cases in which an insurance company will disagree with the clinician and say that we will not pay for an inpatient admission. These are very challenging cases, often require an escalation to a supervisor's level. The the second thing that comes to my mind is that if an individual has Medicaid through a certain county and there are questions about where the actual residence is, uh, believe it or not, counties can sort of fight amongst themselves about who should be the payer for that uh, patient's admission. This can take hours, uh, five hours, 10 hours to sort out. Often the patient has to stay in the emergency department until the next morning to figure out. So a lot of barriers with insurance authorization. And I think the process of contacting hospitals is also unfortunately still pretty archaic where we are, you know, using phones and we're using fax machines. So that the healthcare system is keeping the fax machine industry alive, um, knowing that it is a secure way to ensure that protected health information is going from our facility to another facility. But, you know, that can cause delays as well as um, all technology has its faults. Um, but I know this can cause a lot of delays in emergency rooms and can delay access to that, you know, much needed care. 
if I had a dollar for every time we've heard that we didn't get that fax, uh, we'd all be very rich. And I think, Saima, like the recent line that we've been hearing lately from hospitals is like, oh, that patient's packet is number 20, number 30, and my pile of packets that I need to review. And, you know, we have two beds at this hospital. So call back tomorrow. And that speaks to something that we discussed previously in our episode uh, entitled The State of Mental Health, where bed availability is really dictating the speed at which we can transport patients between an emergency department and their treatment uh, at an inpatient psychiatric hospital. Yeah, and sometimes from our inpatient medical units, once they've gone through whatever medical treatment they need before they can get psychiatric care, sometimes there's, you know, that pause because, like we've mentioned before, a patient needs to be medically stable before we can even start that process of looking for a bed. So they kind of don't even get in line until they've been medically cared for. Another thing I would add that makes Michigan medicine unique in our state is that the majority of our patients, pediatric or adult, who need inpatient psychiatric stay are actually transferred to an outside hospital. This brings up a couple issues. So one, we are wholly dependent on these outside hospitals to accept the patient. And it is highly variable whether they're able to or not, but we're very dependent on that. It's very different than when you think about a pediatric patient who has a medical issue It's a fairly simple process to admit them to a medical unit. Yes, they might have to wait a few hours. Maybe they have to wait 12 hours, until uh, 24 hours until a bed is available. But because we're dependent on outside hospitals so much, that's where the stays can get longer into days or even weeks. And I think what we've also been seeing is that as more and more individuals need beds, hospitals can be a little bit more picky about which patients they are willing and ready to treat and kind of can dictate what patients they're accepting into their milieu. So those patients who are a little bit more complicated or have more behavioral dysregulation take even longer for us to find care, unfortunately. And we know that, unfortunately, some community mental health don't contract with all the hospitals in the state. So where you live can impact where you can get care as well. And we also know that, unfortunately, there's challenges for LGBTQ youth as well, accessing care because some rooms are doubles and hospitals have certain policies pertaining to that. So access can be really challenging um, for a very vulnerable population. And we mentioned all of this really to just touch on why it's so difficult and why it takes such a long time for patients to make that transition. Once we've sort of gone through all of the legal steps and have decided that this person needs care, because I know that a lot of providers who are going to be listening to this podcast are probably coming in contact with patients who are waiting for hours, if not days, sometimes weeks, um, you know, a week for care. And, you know, that can really weigh on a patient and can cause sometimes, you know, difficulty with irritability and can mean that it's hard to sit and wait. And it sometimes can be hard for providers um, to understand why this this person is kind of suffering or, or stuck. And so really, we mention all of this so that there can be kind of a deeper understanding as to why the waits are so long. And um, we've discussed in one of our when our, one of our upcoming podcasts, some of the coping skills and techniques that you might be able to use with a patient who's sort of stuck in this position for hours, days, or a week. So it might be worthwhile to listen into that um, for some useful tips on how to deal with this. 
Thanks so much for that reflection, Dr. Burns, on kind of the psychological distress that these patients are in. And I know it's also really stressful for staff that care for these individuals, you know, that are in the ER for days and weeks, um, knowing that we're not able to get them the care that they need. And so remember to care for yourselves as well, um, because we know that the mental health crisis not only impacts our patients and families, it also impacts us as providers. So jumping into another question, Dr. Hung, some of our adults have guardians or we seek guardianship for adults that we feel cannot safely make decisions for themselves. How does guardianship apply within the context of mental health? What rights does a patient retain and a guardian have? This is true that some adult patients who are deemed not to be able to make sound decisions will be appointed a, a legal guardian. And what I would say is there's somewhat of a correlate between a guardian and an adult and a guardian of a child. Uh, in both cases, the patient is felt legally that they are not able to make decisions for themselves, and the guardian must consent to treatment for them, whether that's a medical procedure, a particular medication, or hospital admission. Um, that being said, for some of these adult patients, they can still actually go through the involuntary process if the guardian does not agree to that psychiatric admission. I would just say that because the intersection of legal and psychiatric issues is complex, anyone who has questions should feel free to reach out to anyone on the mental health team for clarification, and we will do our best to offer guidance. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Hong. We appreciate your time and your expertise. And thank you to our audience who joined us this week. For nurses, social workers, and physicians, you can claim CMEs or CEUs at uofmhealth.org slash breaking down mental health. You're able to do this anytime within three years of the initial air date. And we hope that you join us next time.